If you've been here uh, the past few weeks, you know that uh, Boomer has been preaching through John 13, and I don't know if it's hit you the way that it's hit me, but you know, really through the, the entire Gospel of John, it's, a, it's the longest account of the Passion narrative. And as it starts in John chapter 13, it's, it's really just amazing to see the fullness of who Jesus is. Because, you know, he's preached about the, uh, the betrayal that will happen by Judas. He's preached about the denial that will happen with Peter. And then all within the midst of that, Jesus is one washing his disciples' feet, exhorting the disciples to this new commandment to love one another. And I'm just saying, like, if, if I were going to be betrayed, if I were going to be denied to the extent that Jesus was, I don't... <laughs> I don't think those are my first responses. And I think we see in this that, that Jesus is more than just a man, that he indeed is the God-man, and he indeed is the very Son of Man. Our passage today is Psalm chapter 17. In this psalm, you'll hear that David himself is in conflict. Most commentators believe that this happened when... Um, Saul was unjustly persecuting David, even though David hadn't done anything wrong. David flees. You can find out about it in 1 Samuel chapter 23. But as we see in the title, and the titles are very important, that this is a prayer of David, a prayer of a man who's been described as one who's after God's own heart. And so I believe these Psalms inform us, instruct us, about what we should value even in the midst of conflict. So follow along with me, Psalm chapter 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of violence. My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me. Incline your ear to me, hear my words." Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They've now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me... 
I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And we say together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I invite you to join me in prayer. Almighty God, we are grateful for your sovereign and gracious work to uh, preserve and even to pen this prayer for our sake. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would um, imprint this, write this even on our own hearts and give us eyes to see and faith to believe that this is for us. Help us to see even your own son in this text, we pray. We pray this all for his glory and for our good. Amen. Now, being the youngest of four boys, I was pretty familiar with conflict at an early age in life. Um, But my first real fight came in the first grade at the first grade playground. So it was me and this boy, Wesley. And the conflict was we had both set our affections on a first grade girl in our class named Candy. And you know how first grader fights go, right? I go, Candy's mine. No, she's not, she's mine. No, she's not, she's mine. No, she's not, she's mine. And I have about all I can take of this, so I get my Star Wars metal lunchbox and I wail it over Wesley's head. His head starts bleeding, He goes to the nurse. I get in some multiple academic trouble, story of my life. Um, And the sad thing is, I don't know if it ever resolved the conflict. Like, I don't know if Candy ever knew the great lengths that I went to for her to be mine. Now, you can hear of that account and you'd be like, man, Mark, that's pretty impressive. Taking matters into your own hand, I like it. Or you could hear that account and think, boy, Mark, that's, that's pretty petty. You see, conflict always has this way of revealing something about ourselves. And a lot of times, it reveals things that we don't like about ourselves. Now, in my context, the past 20 years, I've been an army chaplain and, uh, you know, during some significant significant times of combat, and one of the questions that I like to ask soldiers is, has combat made you bitter, or has combat made you better? And it's not just a question I ask, it's really a question that's been asked through all the generations of warfare. A scholar, uh, William Boyce, who was himself a Vietnam veteran, in an Esquire magazine titled, Why Men Love War, he says this about his own experience. In war, I I explored a region of my soul in most men remains unchartered. I surrendered to an aesthetic divorced of the crucial equality of empathy that allows us to feel the suffering of others. I stood on the edge of my humanity. I think he's saying that combat made him bitter. But in a book titled Waves of War, a Normandy veteran said this, Normandy made me a better man. It helped me face the joys and the sadness of life. Another article written in the New York Post 
titled, What Did World War I Do to You? A veteran says that war cost me my wife. It left my body crippled, but I gained an understanding and an acceptance that nothing else would ever give me. Now, I know that not all of us know the realities of combat. But all of us know the realities of conflict. It is all around us, relationally, professionally, culturally, politically. I believe that's even being stoked. And whatever the conflict is, sometimes you look back at it and how you and what it revealed about yourself and, and, and you're like, man, I, I, I don't know if I like that about myself. And that's where I think this prayer of David really helps us because Psalm 17 informs us and instructs us of what we should truly value in the midst of conflict so that we would not be bitter people, but so that we would be better people. Because ultimately, God uses conflict to drive us to our Savior. And so we're going to look real briefly at this psalm today. We're going to see the nature of the conflict We'll see what David values and prays for in the midst of this conflict. And then we'll see ultimately how this points us to Jesus. So first of all, what does this conflict look like? You heard about it in verses 9 through 12. David is describing the intentions and the actions of this enemy. They are completely set on undoing David. No regard for David's well-being. How they look and perceive David. They are surrounding him, ambush Every intent of theirs is on destroying David. The danger is pressing in hard, and he urgently needs help. Now, psychologists would describe that when we're in that kind of jam, right, you've got two responses. What happens, whatever, with your amygdala, I don't, can't even say it right. But right, either fight or flight. When you're in that kind of jam, we either flee as a means of self-preservation in the midst of the threat, or we fight back to mitigate or eliminate the threat. But in this, we see, even in the very title, that this is a prayer. There is another response besides fight or flight. Even in verse 6, David says, I call unto you. In verse 13, yes, David is fleeing but he's entrusting the threat to the Lord. He says, arise, O Lord, deliver my soul by your sword, by your hand. And so whatever conflict you may be in the midst of, whether it be relational, professional, cultural, there's always another response other than just fight or flight. And really our response would be to entrust that, entrust that threat, entrust that conflict to the Lord. And prayer not only helps us in seeing David entrust the conflict to the Lord, but what he actually prays helps us. Because this is true, brothers and sisters, whatever you pray for reflects what you value. And that's where I think this psalm is so helpful to us. 
So we'll move into this portion. As David prays, what do we see that he values? Now, the first thing that you have to remember about conflict is conflict has a way of um, disintegrating us. And I know you young people, when I say disintegrate in conflict, you're already thinking about Thanos getting all five of the infinity stones, snapping his finger, the blip happens, and his, his enemies just disintegrate into dust. But in the real world, that's not quite how conflict works. But conflict does have this way of disintegrating us, making us act in smaller and separate parts of who we really are. We don't necessarily respond out of the fullness or the wholeness of who we are. Think Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, right? And so in verses one through five, in the midst of this conflict, what David is praying for, what David is valuing, he's valuing integrity. He's valuing living an integrated life. And you see this in verses two through three that that this isn't David just wanting his own sense of integrity, but it's an integrity that is from before the Lord. He says, from your presence, let my vindication come. You tried my heart. You tested me. This is way bigger than David's own sense of his own integrity. He's saying, Lord, it, I want to be in, have integrity before you. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see that integrity is both public and private. David, in the midst of this conflict, is, is wanting to live a life of integrity before others, but it's also lived in the most um, solitude of moments because he speaks about this happening in the watches of the night. And isn't, I don't know if you're like me, but it's in the watches of the night in those wee hours of the morning when our failings, our shortcomings, typically most plague us. One commentator put it this way, that the bottom of a man's heart is made manifest at night. And David's saying, I want integrity even in that moment. He goes on to say in verses 3 and 4 that, Integrity is, he wants his integrity to be reflected in both his words and in his deeds. He says, my mouth will not transgress, my steps held fast to your paths. And this one's really hard as a preacher to say. What he's saying is, my, my thinking doesn't overstep my mouth, aka my inside voice stays inside which is really hard to do when you talk for a living, all right? But then moreover, it's not just saying that. He's saying, I want my integrity to be so aligned that what I say, that, that my deeds, my conduct match my words. He goes on more in verses four and five to see that integrity is both a positive and a negative reality. He says that his he has avoided the ways of the violent, but he's, his steps have held fast to the paths and the commandments of God. And so often integrity, we just think that integrity is as long as I can just avoid the bad things, as long as I can just avoid the worldly things, then I'll live a life of integrity. But no, integrity is avoiding those things, but also pursuing the very righteousness and obedience 
to God and his paths and his commandments. You see, usually when we are in conflict, we just want to be right. <laughs> that is all we care about. That is all we see. We, we see the, the, the rightness of ourselves. We see the, the rightness of our argument. And we just want to be right. And when you're in that moment, you can be right and still go about it in ways that are very wrong, that lack integrity. And so I think a question we should ask ourselves when we're in the midst of that conflict, maybe a good self-awareness question, is do you care more about the intensity of your argument or do you care more about your integrity when you're in the midst of that conflict and in the midst of that argument? So David goes on to pray and showing us what he values so again, conflict can have this tendency to disintegrate us, but conflict always, uh, or at least sometimes, has this tendency to isolate us, right? I mean, David's in a cave all by myself, right? Like, again, when you're wanting to get out of conflict, you, you flee, you isolate. It has that tendency to do that in our lives when we're in the midst of real conflict. But David, knowing that, in a cave by himself, is pursuing and valuing intimacy with the Lord. In verses 6 through 8, in the midst of this isolated context, David is crying out for intimacy and intimacy with the Lord. He longs to be spiritually and relationally connected with God. In verse 6, he, he calls upon the Lord and there's this confidence that God will answer him because he knows that God cares and he knows that God is close, that God is close enough to hear him and to care for him and so that the danger doesn't separate him from the care nor the closeness of God. In verse 7, we see him valuing intimacy because he says, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge. <laughs> He's like, God, just remind me you love me. He's saying, Wondrously, wondrously show your steadfast love. He is so assured of God's intimate care, even though he's isolated by himself. And what that reminds us of is that. In, in the midst of conflict, we, we don't just flee from the threat, but we flee to the very loving arms of God. In verse 8, we see this intimacy continued because he says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadows of your wing. wings. It speaks of the tenderest and dearest of care. It speaks of the jealous care of God's love for us that we are so connected to the living God that when we are in conflict, conflict, it's not just that we are affected, but that he himself is affected. Isn't that what Jesus said to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then moreover, he talks about hiding us in the shelter and the refuge of his wings a place where there is refreshing rest and security. He is holding his children close. 
And again, the, the picture of our Savior, even in the midst of conflict, saying, I wish that I were like a mother hen and could gather you under my wings, even to those who were tormenting him. And so whatever the conflict is that you're in, never doubt God's care or closeness for you. You know, when we find our refuge in him, conflict is anxiety producing, undoubtedly, right? But if you're finding your refuge and your rest and your security and your belonging and the loving, tender care of God, a lot of times that diminishes the anxiety of whoever's trying to do you harm. You know, after my fight with Wesley, you know, Wesley was pretty upset about it. <laughs> Go figure. And so every day during class, he'd be like, Mark, we got to settle this. I was like, oh boy. So like every day after school, I made a beeline to my oldest brother, right? And I like latched arms with him. And the same the same is so true for us, brothers and sisters. We can latch arms with our big brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, to diminish all of that angst and that anxiety, knowing that we are just latched into him intimately, spiritually, and relationally. And I would even tell you this. It, if you know God has you intimately, closely, don't you think that that might even inform how you respond in conflict? You don't have to lash out. He's got you. He's got you. Moreover, we see David in the midst of conflict. He's valuing integrity. He's valuing um, intimacy. But conflict has this another tendency that has to do in our lives. Like if you're in the thick of it, like real throws, real like just nasty, ugly conflict. A lot of times what that does is it makes you doubt who you are, right? You're like, man, I thought I was a good guy. I thought I was a decent dude, whatever. And, and like, but I'm in the midst of this conflict and it makes you begin, what's, what's wrong with me? What's wrong about me? And it makes us question who we are. There's an important transition that happens in this passage. And again, in verses 9 through 12, David's describing the, the actions and the intentions of the enemy. In verses 13 and 14, we see him entrusting the threat of that enemy to the Lord. But there's this very important transition in verse 15. These words, as for me. As for me. David is saying something that he knows that is true of himself, about himself. And what is it? What is it that he declares? He says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And this has all the language of resurrection in it. David is confident that this reality is true for him. It's more than what the enemy can do to him. 
And we know our, our dear brother, John Harvat, was in the midst of great conflict with cancer so many years. And now he is satisfied, resting, beholding the very likeness and righteousness. He's satisfied in that. And that is our hope. And in the light of the fulfillment of the gospel, I hope you know this. It's one thing. It's one thing that we get to behold the very likeness of Jesus. But because of the fullness of the gospel, we don't just get to behold it. That we will actually bear the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 3, 2. We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We don't get to behold his righteousness unless we bear his righteousness. That's what makes so great. That's what makes um, grace so amazing. It's amazing enough that I even get to behold the righteousness of Jesus, but that a sinful, self-absorbed Mark Winton will one day bear the very righteousness of Jesus. That is indeed amazing grace. (laughs) So David is taking hold of his eternal identity. That's what he's taking hold of. And don't you think that that eternal identity probably should inform how we respond in conflict in the here and now? Now, I appreciate your grace and your patience with me. I know I'm one of these preachers. I took some liberty with my alliteration. Okay, sorry. I'm just a simple man and I need easy hooks because I'm fickle and forgetful. Okay? But I really believe, I really believe these three eyes, your integrity, your intimacy, and your identity, that these are foundational to living, sorry for another I, as image bearers of our King. Because like, you know, Wesley reminds Princess Buttercup in that epic movie, The Princess Bride, all of life is pain. And if somebody's telling you something else, they're probably trying to sell you something. You see, we never, we never get around the conflict of the flesh, the world, and the devil. We always wrestle and contend and have conflict with all of those. But I believe these three eyes are a good assessment of our daily experiences of just, am I living a life of integrity, intimacy, and identity as I contend against the flesh and the world and the devil? Now, I would tell you this, this is so critical, so important, You are not the source of those. Again, this is a prayer of David's. David is saying, my integrity, my intimacy, my identity come from you. You are the source of these, not myself. The other thing I would tell you just real briefly is this. If I had a whiteboard, I'd put integrity at the top, intimacy right here, identity right there. You see, so often we want to live lives of integrity. We care about our integrity. We care about being known and having reputations of being people who have integrity. But I will tell you, you will never, never get to integrity without living out of intimacy and identity. That's the only way that you will get there. 
Now, I would fail you as a pastor if I just said, hey, go be like David, go pray this prayer of integrity, intimacy, and identity, just value these in conflict like David did, and I would fail you just as David failed. (laughs) Because we know that David didn't do this, right, in conflict. Israel's out to war. Did he live a life of integrity? Nope. Did he pursue intimacy outside the paths of God? Yes. Was he living out of his eternal identity, the righteousness of his king? Nope. But Jesus has. Jesus has. And I would say that Jesus has done this against the most formidable folks in the most formidable of conflicts. He's done this against Satan in both the wilderness and the cross. Right when he's in the wilderness, right? Right before the gospel authors record that it was his baptism. Right? Right before he goes into the wilderness. And what does he hear? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he goes into that wilderness and weakness and fasting. But he lives a life of integrity, perfect obedience to the commandments of God. He lives knowing this intimacy that he is the beloved son. And even the gospel um, authors record that after that incident, the angels intimately ministered to him. And of course he lived out his identity. This is my beloved son. Every time being tested, if you are the son of God, even being challenged in the identity. And what is the outcome of Jesus living out his integrity, intimacy, and identity? (laughs) Matthew records like that after that incident, Jesus didn't flee. The devil did. The devil did. Moreover, Jesus does this on the cross for our sake, living out a life of integrity, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Even when it's hard to be faithful, he subjects himself. Even Pilate saying of him that there's no wrong. Even there on the cross, we hear his cries of intimacy. Yes, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also intimately cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then his identity is recorded as even the Roman centurion said, surely this is the son of God. What is the outcome of Jesus living out his intimacy, identity, integrity there on the cross? The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 2.14, that through death, he being Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and free those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Jesus did that perfectly. And the most formidable of foes and the most formidable of conflicts to destroy the enemy and to deliver us. Now, here's, no, here's what I know about myself. I hate conflict. I, I want comfort. I want ease. I want everybody to get along, you know, drama-free as long as possible. And it never happens. (laughs) And when conflict does come, I know that I do not necessarily respond out of integrity, intimacy, and identity. You can ask Karen and my kids. And I know none of us are good enough to make all of that angst and conflict disappear. That we will always contend with the flesh, the world, and the devil. So how does this passage help us today? First of all, I hope it helps you just in worship. 
I hope you see the moral excellencies of our king. You know someone is a really, really good person by how they act in conflict. And I hope you see the moral excellency of your Savior, that even against the most formidable foe and the most formidable of conflict, he acts out of integrity, intimacy, and identity. And I hope that drives your worship and your trust of him because of his great moral excellency. But I also, if you're like me, when you blow it in conflict, (laughs) when you blow it, hey, one look at self, ten looks to Christ. One look to self, ten looks to Christ. Ten looks to his integrity, intimacy, and identity. But I would say that these aren't just for your assurance. These are yours now for you to exhibit, to display before a watching world in our generation. Imagine, imagine your kids when they know, and kids know, they're smart, they know when mom and dad are in conflict, (laughs) but they see husband and wife responding out of integrity, intimacy, and identity. Or moreover, just think about the Just the conflict and angst. Again, I believe it's being stoked in our age and in our day, culturally, politically. It's so divisive. There's so much vitriol. And imagine the world seeing the people of God respond out of integrity, intimacy, and identity. Because we know that those are ours because of our King. And that we would do that in this day and age for his glory in this generation. As we come to the table, this table is really a feast. It's a feast where we celebrate that our greatest foe and our greatest conflict has been vanquished, resolved, and it wasn't our doing. It was the doing of our King and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This meal always has a a means to which it points us backwards. It points us to the historicity of Jesus. And I believe it points us to his integrity, right? His integrity displayed so much, so faithful to the very will of God that his body was broken and his blood was shed. But there's also something about this table that points us to the here and now. Something now. Yes, it points back to that moment of history. But that history comes to the here and now. And it reminds us of that intimacy which we have with the Lord. Yes, he lived a life of integrity. But that integrity was done for you. For you. That's why we do call this communion. Because we believe that there's a seal here. The Spirit's here and he ministers the word to us in such an intimate way that we commune with the Lord. But then this meal goes on and it points us forward. It points us forward. 
Because the Apostle Paul reminds us that when we take of the bread and eat of the cup, we proclaim his death until he returns. And it's when he returns that all of that, all of that intimacy, all of that integrity, all of that identity, we will partake of that in the great wedding banquet of the Lamb for all eternity. And we begin to experience a foretaste of that even now. And so it was on that night in which Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room that he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In similar fashion, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the covenant of my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, this table is Christ's table. And he invites all of those who recognize, (laughs) yeah, maybe my integrity is not great. Maybe I haven't been living out of my identity. I don't know if I've been pursuing intimacy with the Lord as much as I should this week. But if you're looking to Christ more than looking to yourself, if you've trusted in Christ, confessed your sins and repented of those, he would say, come and eat. So he can nourish you in those. If you're here today and you don't know of your sin, you don't know of your need for a Savior, we would encourage you not to come up and partake. Not because we want to think less about you, but just be honest with where you are before the Lord. This is his meal for his people who've trusted in him. Let's pray together.